A few weeks ago in Austin, there was a, a new festival called the New Story Festival. It's the first time it ever happened. It took place at Houston Tillotson University. I had some friends who organized it. And they based it off of this uh, festival in Asheville, North Carolina, called the Wild Goose Festival, where they have musicians and writers and others who come in, um, mostly Christian, but all, not necessarily, and talk about life with God and talk about music and art and things like that. And so I thought, this is a great idea, but I can't help run it. I've got other things in my life. Um, but a friend called me to go play music. And I hadn't, I hadn't played music with him in six years. But it was like it was 10 o'clock at night. It was on my bass, which is my, my real instrument. And so I was like, oh, okay, that'll be fine. Um, and I show up, and there's two other people who I've never met before. And they're playing too. And it's like, all right, let's do this. And we played for an hour, and it was great. I knew like half the songs, maybe that. Uh, but, but the thing is, I've played enough, enough music with people, I don't need to know the songs to play along with them. I can read the chords on the guitarist's hands. A lot of gospel tunes are pretty simple chord changes. Um, I, when I lived in North Carolina, I played a lot of bluegrass. And one of the great things about bluegrass um, is sometimes there's no chord change. And they'll be like, this song is in C. It's like, and then what? And then it's over. <laughs> Um, which is, it's a lot of fun to play. I don't know how musically it sounds sometimes, but, you know, but a lot of, a lot of patterns and chord changes and key changes are very, they follow the similar patterns that you can hear songs, and once you play enough, you hear them. Now, there's some very, very complicated songs, like, like John Coltrane's Giant Steps, which has 10 key changes in one song. Um, we should listen to it one time, but never try to play it. It's not going to work. <laughs> Um, but then most, most songs are, are pretty straightforward and simple. As if you, if you get out a hymnal, you can pick any hymnal. There should be a hymnal near, near you. If you. Right now, this is... Yeah, so you take a time. This is the hymnal. You pick it up. It's great. Um, all right. This time, I turned to 384, just randomly. Um, love divine, all love's excelling. And so you see a lot of the pattern even on here. One of the ways hymnals are constructed is to show us this pattern. And so we have, we have the name and the title. The title of a hymn is usually just the first line. They're, especially like old hymn writers never really titled things. It's kind of a modern conception. On the bottom right, if you look at the bottom right of the column, there's a, a weird word called Beecher. And so that's the name of the tune. Um, and then under that is the meter. And one of the cool things about the hymnals is you can move the meter, meters and tunes, all around and play around with it. Um, but it's... Like this, this chord, like love divine, love divine, love, it's a like one, 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 three, four, one, one, three, four. Like it's a very, very simple chord change. I could join in playing this on my bass with anyone. Like I would never, I wouldn't have to speak the same language. Um, and you could play the music because of the patterns involved in hearing the patterns. Does anyone else have another hymn they want to throw out there? Give me a number. 181. 181, thank you for participating. One eighty-one. Ye servants of God, another Charles Wesley one. And this is a, the meter's a little longer, but it's still it's a pretty straightforward, um, and it's going to be in a three three four key change. This again is going to be something that's really straightforward to play with. Um, it has a much older older tune to it this way, but you can easily reset it and easily jump in. And one of those things it has a. Yeah, there's a hot, there's an E flat, which is kind of high range for a lot of choral singing. And one of the things about the Methodist hymnal is the range is a little more modest. If you ever visit like a Catholic or Episcopal church, 
their hymnals assumes everyone can hit a high, um, like a high G. And they're just like singing along, and then suddenly it's just the sopranos in the choir singing, and then everyone else joins in a little. But we're a little, Methodist is a little more modest. We're not trying to be showy with our range. But again, you can, it'd be really easy to pick this up. I could probably lead it on guitar. One of the reasons why Tyler can like sight read so many things is not because he processes every song completely new for the first time. It's pattern recognition. He's like, this song is a lot like this song, and I know how to play that song so I can do this. And that's so often what musicians do. It's not this like, okay, I'm going to figure out this tune completely from scratch. It's you go with the pattern recognition. You go with what you already know and understand. There are so many patterns involved in the scriptures. Throughout the Bible, it's filled with these patterns that you see again and again. Now, my friends, we are entering a new sermon series called God's Love Song. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the most scandalous book of the Bible, the Song of Songs. I told, um, I told Pat, who was reading today, that this is probably the, the least racy reading of the entire month of June. So if you're reading, if you're a lay reader in the month of June, get ready. Um, you're going to be, get ready to turn beet red. It's going to be, but it's in the Bible. It's like you're not making it up. It's in the Bible. It is there. It is one of the most, the ancient church, people were not allowed to read it before being baptized. And even then you were kind of restricted because it's so easy to read it in the wrong way to misunderstand what is going on. The early church also would connect the book of Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and the Song of Songs. And so um, Bernard of Clairvaux, a, a medieval saint, would say, Ecclesiastes looks at the false promise of the world. And so Ecclesiastes begins with this, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, all is work and toil. And so you read Ecclesiastes, or there's, there is a season to That's Ecclesiastes too. Um, <laughs> But it's this sense that you cannot save yourself through work. You're not going to be able to rise above the world by working really, really hard. And that's what Ecclesiastes shows you, is that like, it's vanity. Like, this is vanity. Proverbs shows a way of, of responding to the world and the good action that is possible in this world. And so um, Bernard goes and then says that the Song of Songs shows what is best. What is best? And he explains, taking it then, that these two evils have been warded off by Ecclesiastes in Proverbs. We may suitably proceed with this holy and contemplative discourse, which as the fruit of the other two may be delivered only to well-prepared ears and minds. You have to prepare your ear and your mind to see God moving in this place. The meaning is not on the surface of the Song of Songs. If we stay on the surface, it is a love poem, a very overtly sexual dramatic poem. Instead, there is a pattern here, a pattern we should be able to start seeing everywhere, like the chord changes in a hymn or a praise song. Another word for a pattern is an allegory. An allegory is a story or a poem or a picture that has a hidden meaning, which can be revealed. And a way for Christians to understand allegory comes from Paul in 2 Corinthians where he says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The first Christian to publish an allegorical interpretation of the Song of Songs was a man named Origen in Alexandria in the third century in northern Egypt, a long, long time ago. And this is what he wrote. This little book, which has the semblance of a marriage song, is written in a dramatic form. 
And you read it. If you look it up in your Bible, if you look it up on your Bible phone right now, you'll see most, most versions have like spouse or bride or bridegroom or woman or the voice. They show the voice because it is, there's different voices. There's a dialogue going on. Reading it as a simple story, then, we see a bride appearing on the stage having received for her betrothal and by way of a dowry most fitting gifts from a most noble bridegroom. But because the bridegroom delays his coming for so long, she is grieved with longing for him and pining at home. This is the content of the actual story, what Origen says. But let us seek the inner meaning, also so fittingly supplied. Let it be the church which longs for union with Christ. This is the key. Both of these meanings remain. One meaning does not eliminate the other. So often, more Protestant interpretations of the Song of Songs says it is only an allegory. And this is the only way to read it. There's one way to read it, and then we move on. And yet, they're both here. Love poems have always been around. Instead, what we have here is a pattern of Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ. As another early church writer put it, it is the song sung by the Holy Spirit at the marriage of the church and Christ. It is a song sung by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in there. The Holy Spirit that is the love between the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit who is sent to us at Christ's ascension is the author of the song of songs. Usually when we read anything, for those of you who have read anything in the past year, if you have read something, not judging, when we read something, we usually stick to the plain meaning of things. We just try to figure out what is going on. I like to read mysteries because I'm trying to figure out who, who did it, who done it. And you turn the page and you're like, okay, who did it? And then you get to the point and you're like, that guy, there's no reason he did it. And then you put the book down and you move on. You don't like dwelling on it. It's like, that was, or it's like, oh, cool, I didn't see that coming. And you, you solve the puzzle. Like a lot of stories are like that. You read a news article and you're like, okay, this is what I got from it. A lot of songs function in the same way. As well, you don't listen to them for some deeper meaning. They have a good beat or a melody. Maybe they are funny. Or maybe, you know, maybe you like some of the words. But often the reason why we, we love a song or we love a hymn or a praise song speaks to where and when we first heard it or sung it as much as the content of the song. Today we're going to take some time with the Song of Songs to see how some theologians throughout the centuries have read and understand different figures and descriptions. And this is not an arcane thing. It may seem arcane. It may seem obscure. One of those things that's not often preached on Sunday. Maybe it seems like more of a lecture today. But, but there is applicability here. In some ways, the Song of Songs is the most relevant book of the Bible. How does Christ love you? What does that look like? How can we respond to Christ's love? in our life. What has been opened up for us? This may seem super complicated and obscure. The thing is, though, God's love is complicated. It is deep. And we can can choose to stay on the surface with God, just like we can choose to stay on the surface with any relationship we have in our life. We can choose to stay on the surface. We can talk about the weather. Gosh, it's hot outside. We can talk about when the rain is going to come. We can talk about how the longhorns are going to do. We can talk on the surface all we want and not go anywhere. 
And that option is there for us with God. We can choose to stay on the surface with God. We can choose to pray to God whenever we're sad or other times like that or we need something and then kind of just go through the motions. Or we can go deeper. We start with the name, the Song of Songs. In Hebrew, it's Shir Hasharim. It is a superlative. They don't have a word for best in Hebrew. So instead of saying best, This is how you refer to something that it's the best, like the king of kings. It is the song of songs. It's much more poetic than the best song, but so I prefer that. It's still important. So what is it? So it claims to be the best song. What does it mean to claim to be the best song? I mean, most of us have a favorite song of some kind. And we're like, no, I like this song. That's that's better than, yeah, Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain is better than the song of songs, God. You should should put Willie up there. But, but most of the time, I remember when I was, you know, when you're single or you're moved to a new place, oftentimes music is a way to connect with other people. And having a favorite song or favorite songs is a way to connect and kind of share a little about who you are. And I always thought it was, it was like a challenging game of finding the most obscure yet possible song to share <laughs> um, who I could be in the kind of top five list. But, but favorite and best, they'll work in a similar way because if you talk about the best song, you can't talk about it absent context and criteria. Best according to whom? Best according to what? To say a song is the best song is to claim something more about who you are than about that song. And to claim, it's just, it's, it is still saying more about who you are than whatever you are claiming is the best. And so to say that the Song of Songs is the best song, we're claiming something very specific, and it has to do with the content of the song, with the content of the book, and the content is love. But you may say, there are a lot of songs about love. Maybe most of them, most of the songs. (laughs) If if we added up all the songs in history, probably a good 70% are love songs. But why is this one the best? Because of who it is about. Because of why it is here. And before Christ came, and in many um, Jewish communities, the Song of Songs is, is also read as an allegory. But it is an allegory for the love of God for the people of Israel. And then, and then it, as it was read by Christians, it is the love of God, the love of Christ for the church, for the bride and the bridegroom. A love that goes so deep, as Paul says in Philippians That Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself. Being born in human likeness. And being humbled himself to even the point of death. Death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him. That is what we celebrate today, Ascension Sunday. Jesus was exalted. Christ ascended and left us. And that's kind of the point and the challenge of being a Christian. We don't have... Jesus isn't walking around somewhere in Nebraska that we can go and visit and ask him what to do. I don't know why it said Nebraska. Um, but that's the point, that we, don't have, that we don't have a physical person to go and see. We don't have feet, physical feet to follow behind. Instead, we have his body, the church. Christ did not leave us as well in personal orders like a dictator. He wasn't like rising up into heaven and saying, okay, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. Love one another. That is what he left us with. And how do we know what to do? We look at the scriptures he left us. We still seek life 
with God. But life with God looks more like a love story than anything else. When we think about a future life with God, when we think about heaven and what happens for those whom we love when they die, life with God looks more like a love story than a resort getaway. Oftentimes it's presented this way, that heaven is this this wonderful resort community that you get the key to once you die if you pass all the tests alive. And then you get to stay with all the cool people and none of the lame people, and you don't have to die or be sick. And that's in perpetuity. And so if you think that's what it's going to be, if you get this get-out-of-jail-free card, if you think heaven is just going to be a continuation of this life, yeah, like there's nothing much you can do now. But that idea of heaven looks more like Elysium in pagan Rome than it does anything in the Christian scriptures. Instead, heaven is the presence of God. The presence of the God who is love. It is basking in the perfect love of God. That is what happens to the saints who go before us. They are in that eternal presence of God. The perfect knowledge, the life with God that is beyond description. And the amazing thing, the most beautiful thing for us is that it does not have to just be in the future. We don't need to just save up for that heaven vacation in the sky. Instead, we can live that heavenly life now. As well, my friends, if we don't want to be with God now, why would we want to be with God then? God in the future. Instead, if we see our God as love revealed most perfectly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the amazing is possible. You are loved by God. The Song of Songs is how we yearn for God now. Yearn for love. We can, this is possible, through grace to seek love, to wait patiently for the Lord, to find the Lord. As well, we can see the allegory Jesus uses in Matthew 25. If we want to be with the Lord who is loved, we must answer our door. We must feed those who are hungry. We must clothe those who are naked. If we want to be with our Lord now. So the Song of Songs is full of all of these moves. And over the next few weeks, we're not going to really go into um, like the plot of the poem, but focus on a few key details. And the first is as shocking as any. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. This is in the Bible. <laughs> in the same Bible, many of you, had, like your grandparents, had on their, their bedside table, and you would never imagine them saying those words out loud. A lot of Methodists who grew up in the Methodist church, 100 years ago, we were a total teetotaler denomination. Um, so it's really hard to imagine how they read this verse. Your love is better than wine. It's like, well, that's pretty mediocre love because wine is really bad. <laughs> but what, let's start with this. What, do, what have, has, have the tradition shared about this verse? Here are three ways of reading it that is no way, no, by no means exhaustive. The first is by a 17th century French mystic, Jean Guyon. The kiss that the soul requests from her God is essential union or real, lasting, and permanent possession coming from the divine object. This is spiritual marriage. Another is from the Venerable Bede in um, England in the 8th century. For he who at that time opened his mouth and proclaimed to the world the unheard of joys of the heavenly kingdom was the one who had so often opened the mouths 
of the prophets. And then finally, St. Bernard. The mouth that kisses signifies the word who assumes human nature. The kiss is formed by both. A lot of uh, medieval commentators would focus on the lips, that to kiss someone you have to have lips, and usually two lips. I don't know if there's a third lip for some people, but usually two lips. Um, and they would often, as that signifies for Jesus, one, the human and the divine nature of Jesus Christ. And the word, the longing for the kiss is longing for the word of God, for the spiritual marriage of us who being present with God. So which one is right? That, that's obvious your question, right? Preacher, just tell me what, what the right answer is. But that is part of the point. The Bible is not a test. Faith is not a test. Fight, life with God is not a test. I once had a, a member of a, at a previous appointment come up to me one Sunday and ask, well, well, pastor, I thought being a Christian was about accruing as many merit badges as possible before I got to heaven. He was an old Boy Scout. And I was like, no, it's grace. It's grace all the way down. It is good to do the things of God. But you are not saved that way. You do not enter the presence of God by earning more merit badges than the people around you or by getting on that last ticket onto the lifeboat. All we receive is by grace, by the love of God for you. And so we can stay on the surface, though. Or even not that. We can live lives completely apart from God. God offers us the freedom to scorn him as a scorned lover, to live apart from God. God offers us that freedom. Or we can long for God, not just in the future, but now. Right now. This love is not just for you. God's love song is not just for us, but for the whole of creation and the yearning and longing, the kisses and caresses of the song of songs is for all that have been created. To all be made one again. You are not simply loved in a facile and dismissive way. You right now, with all the things going on in your life, all the bad things you've said or thought, all the things you've done or haven't done, God loves you. And God longs to be with you. That is the Song of Songs. And we are offered this as a way to show us how to respond. To show us how to respond. That is God's love for you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.